0: We're going to join together now in the, in the reading, uh, which is from chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, and it's entitled Salt and Light. So you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and tram- trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This period of of lockdown, if it's done one thing, it has got my attention. It's got my attention big time. It's put me in a place that I've not been before, and a lot of things have happened. I turned 70 during the lockdown, which I think all of you who turn 70 reach the stage when you realize, well, that's my three score years and 10, the rest is a bonus. And you begin to think, you begin to think in those lines. I, I tested positive for COVID about a month or so, and that got my attention for a moment or two. It all turned out okay. And if anything at all, it's given me opportunity and energy to get into God's word more than ever before, certainly for a long, long time. I've discovered YouTube, and if you're on if you're on the service today, you can get YouTube because you just download it and you get. I've been watching about five or six sermons every day, almost every day. I tune on YouTube and watch John MacArthur or Michael Youssef or one of these these great preachers, and it's been wonderful. Um, it's also given me the opportunity to read a lot more than I normally do, even, and. It's taken me back into this sermon. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. You will remember that, or you may not remember, uh, before lockdown, it seems so long ago, that we, we uh, we're, were caught in the middle of a series. We preached three sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and then the lockdown came. And those sermons that I preached then were all about the Beatitudes, these Beatitudes that describe the citizens of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom who are, are to live the life that the king wants us to live. But we recognize our limitations, those Beatitudes say. We recognize our sinfulness. We mourn over our sin. We are meek and we're gentle in a harsh and abrasive world. We we are merciful and forgiving when we are wronged and we hunger after a deeper walk with God. And we try to be pure in heart amidst an immoral society. We make peace where there is strife. We get persecuted and scorned for it. But we keep on living the life of the king in the kingdom. And we allow God's Holy Spirit unhindered access to every part of our lives. And as we saw last week in the fourth sermon in the series, when we live like this, we are indeed salt to the earth. We're salt to the earth because we act like an antiseptic that is to be applied to the wounds of the ungodly with salt to the earth, because sometimes these salty people, these Christians, make people recognize their thirst for something bigger than themselves. Christians act as preservatives in a a decaying society. True Christians are like seasoning amidst the tastelessness of modern life. Christians realize that sometimes they are like salt to an open wound, and folk don't like that. And through it all, Christians... Don't lose their saltiness. They find themselves unless, or they find themselves cast aside and useless in the kingdom. So that's the first analogy that Jesus uses. We are salt in the earth. Now he changes and he uses another analogy. Light. You are the light of the world, a town that on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. We are to be light. In the same way Jesus says to us, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what do we have here? Well, first of all, we have this kind of main statement, if you like, you are the light of the world. Secondly, there are two ways of illustrating this, if you like. There's a town on the hilltop, and there's a lamp on a lampstand. And thirdly, there's this final instruction to let our light shine before others. So let's look at that opening statement then. You are the light of the world. And the first question we need to ask then is, why does the world need light? What does it need light for? And the answer is quite clearly, the world needs light because the world is in darkness. Well, let's see what some other passages of scripture say about this. We see the psalmist, for example, you go back to the Old Testament, we see the psalmist talking about his own spiritual state when he says, You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. That's what the psalmist says. And in fact, you could go even way back into the Garden of Eden. I think what happened in the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve thought that if they were to eat of the fruit of that tree, all the lights would go on. And they would see things differently. They didn't realize though, when they ate the fruit of that tree, that what actually happened, all the lights went out. And from then on, they'd be in darkness. Solomon knew this. Solomon picks it up. And he says in in, in Proverbs chapter 4, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And if we go into the New Testament, we see Matthew Himself, just before you get to the Sermon on the Mount in the previous chapter, he says the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Galilees. the people are living in darkness, but they have now seen a great light, referring to the incarnation, the coming of Christ. And of course, John, in his first chapter of his lovely gospel, when he's talking about in the, in the beginning was the word, Jesus And he talks about Jesus being the light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness just doesn't understand it. The apostle Paul uses this darkness light analogy a great deal in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, live as children of the light. So does Peter in chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2, rather. He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And listen, that you may declare the praises of him who called you, where? From darkness into his wonderful light. That's very powerful. There's darkness and there is light. There's no shade of gray between them. There's no twilight. According to the Bible, you're either in the light, in a relationship with Christ, or you're in the darkness of the world that does not know the light of Christ. There's no half in and half out, though it may appear like that sometimes, especially in the life of some believers who are still far too much in love with the things of the world. The world is a place of darkness. Despite its attempt to light itself up with neon lights in every city and putting light on every street, in every home, in every room, people without Christ. Hate the light. They try to light up every environment they occupy. And as John has told us, the people of the world love darkness. They reject the true light. So, in what ways then is the world in darkness? Well, it's first of all the darkness of of rejection. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it very, very clear that men and women are aware of the presence of God, both in creation, as you know. And in their own consciences so the darkness in which they find themselves is not a darkness of ignorance it's a darkness of rejection and this applies equally to those who have heard the gospel and to those who have not heard the gospel the darkness they are in is a darkness that they have chosen and they have rejected the light it's a darkness secondly of sin The darkness of sin and sinning, sinning darkens the soul. It dulls the moral consciousness of people. Darkness causes confusion along the way. Sin desensitizes our consciences so that people lose their ability to really care. Darkness blinds the mind to the truth of what is right and what is wrong. And before you came to Jesus, before I came to Jesus, we were lost in the dark, even though it didn't seem that way at the time. It's only when you first experience the light of Jesus, you suddenly realize how dark your previous experience was. But you and I who love Jesus are no longer in the dark. We're no longer in the world, although we still live in it. Life has changed totally. And thirdly, there's the darkness of Of hopelessness. Sadly, the people of the world who live in this darkness of rejection and sin, when they look into the future, they see nothing but more darkness. Let me get all literary for just a moment and quote several of England's great writers. First of all, Shakespeare himself. We find the depressed and distressed and suicidal Macbeth looking into his future. Listen to what he says Macbeth. Act five, scene five. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. That's a picture of the darkness in the life of one who doesn't know Jesus. Then the great Matthew Arnold from his beautiful poem, but troubling poem, Dover Beach, at the end of that epic poem, he says this, the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And here we are as on a darkling plain, swept with confused claims of struggle and flight, where ignorant ignorant armies clash by night. What a distressing picture of life. But that's true. T.S. Eliot, in his work, The Hollow Men*, says this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper the darkness of hopelessness. Don't you feel deep, deep sorrow for those with no hope outside of Christ? Someone once put it this way. They say, if you're born once, you die twice. It's only when you're born twice you realize you only die once. If all you have is your physical birth, then you will die physically, but that won't be the end. You will die spiritually as well. But if you're born physically and then you're born again spiritually, the only death you will ever experience is physical death. You will know spiritual life forever and ever. Our only way of showing how deeply we sorrow for those outside of Christ is to be light in their darkness. Now, it may get a bit of confu- confusing because we hear Jesus say this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that comes to me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And that's why we sing. and We're going to sing it later. That's why we sing, shine, Jesus, shine. But how does Jesus shine in the world? He's not here bodily. He's not here in visible form. How can he then shine and how can he be light to the world? The answer, of course, is here in verse 14 as he addresses his followers, and says, but you are also light of the world. We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. We are to imitate him and be light in people's darkness. So Jesus says, let your light shine before others. What is the impact then of light on darkness? Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that light impacts darkness in three different ways. We impact the world in three different ways. Light exposes the darkness and the things that belong to the darkness. That's what light does. It's like switching on a light in a dark room or putting on your headlights in a dark street. One of the fundamental things that the coming of Christ achieved was it exposed to mankind the darkness of life outside of God. And we need to see that contrast. We need to see Christ's perfect sinless life that showed up our sinlessness and our imperfections. Without the perfect life of Jesus, mankind has left nothing to show up its darkness. And this is what Jesus does. It's what he wants us to do to expose the darkness. And secondly, light not only reveals the hidden things of darkness, It also explains the cause of that darkness. One of the great frustrations of men and women in the world today is that they aren't able to figure out why we as men and women are so cruel to one another. Why do we steal from one another? Why do we cheat one another? Why do we hurt one another? Why do we even kill one another? Mankind doesn't have an answer to that. They don't have a solution. They don't know how to fix it. The light of the gospel gives a very clear solution. The gospel says the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. From page one to the very end of the Bible, it is made clear over and over again that the problem behind all of man's dilemma is sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And thirdly, Light not only exposes the darkness and its cause, it also shows and provides a way out of the darkness. That's the joy. And this is why every Christian should be jumping up and down with excitement and enthusiasm. Because we have in our hands the ultimate solution to the problems of the world. There is a solution to sin. There is forgiveness to sin. There is a way to be reconciled to God. Let's look quickly at these two illustrations that Jesus then gives. A town on a hill and a lamp on a lampstand. What did he mean by this? Oswald Chambers, the great uh, Christian writer, says this. The illustrations our Lord uses here are all conspicuous. Salt, light, city on a hill. There's no possibility of mistaking them. Light attracts bats and moths and points out the way for burglars as well as honest people. A city on a hill, any city in fact, is the gathering place for all human driftwood and the Christian church must be prepared to attract all sorts of parasites and ungrateful hangers-on. And these considerations are a great temptation to make us pretend that we are not salt, to make us rather put our light under a bushel to cover our city with a fog. But Jesus will have nothing to do with covert discipleship. Jesus will have nothing to do with covert discipleship. Our light has to be seen. Jesus wants us to be nothing less than conspicuous, not hidden by imitating the world around us, but by standing out, by standing up, by standing firm. Salt that is not contaminated, light that is never dimmed. That's what he wants from us. You see, when you, when you want to establish a town or a village, you may decide to situate it in a valley or on a hill. But we are not to nestle in the valleys of life. It's concealed from everyone's view. We are to be hilltop people, fully visible, fully conspicuous, there for all to see and impossible to miss. We are not to be dim lights tucked away under a bucket in a side room, but we are to be large, bright lamps on a lampstand in the very largest part of the, of the house so that the light can carry as far as possible. Martin Lloyd-Jones again makes an interesting comment on what Jesus may have been referring to when he talks about the lamp and the lampstand. He suggests that if you look at what a lamp looked like in those days, it consisted basically of two parts. There was a, a bowl of oil, and into that bowl of oil you would put a wick, which you would light. And he suggests then that these, the oil and the wick represent two different things. First of all, the oil. What does the oil represent? Well, he suggests that the oil represents the life of Christ in us. The empowering, enlightening presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what the oil represents. So the Christian always needs to ask first, do I have this new life within me, the life of the Spirit, the abundant life that Christ promises us? Without it, of course, we cannot be Christian at all. So the oil represents the life of Christ in us. And secondly then, the wick. To keep a lamp burning, you must not only replenish the oil, but you must keep trimming the wick. In those days, once the wick began to smoke, it meant that the lamp would soon go out. Lloyd-Jones suggests that the wick represents the Beatitudes themselves, the actual outworking of the new life and practice, the outward, outward visible expression of the inward spiritual life. So you've got the oil, which is Christ's life in us, and then you've got the wick, which is us living out the life of Christ. Now, you may have the new life, the oil, but without practically demonstrating it through our poverty of spirit, our meekness, our peacemaking and Shoah, the wick. That's unacceptable. It's also unacceptable to try to demonstrate all of these Christian-like activities if we don't have the life of Christ in us. That's a waste of time. It's a pointless exercise. What exactly then is this light? Well, verse 16 says, this light is our good deeds. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What are these good deeds then? John Stott says that good works, good deeds is a general expression to cover everything a Christian says and does because she is a Christian or he is a Christian every outward and visible manifestation of his or her Christian faith. So our good deeds are what we say and what we do. And since light is often a symbol of truth in the Bible, as Christians, our shining light must also include our spoken testimony to the truth of what God has done in our lives. So personal evangelism, sharing our faith, must be counted as one of these good deeds by which our light shines and our Father is glorified. Martin Luther, in fact, suggests it's probably the, the main thing he's talking about here. Martin Luther says this. He says, talking Jesus is talking principally about the distinctly Christian work of teaching, of stressing faith, and of showing how to strengthen and preserve it. This is how we testify that we are really Christians. Luther suggests that that's the good works that Christ is talking about here. And he might be right. Fundamentally, basically, it's about our sharing of the light that we have with others. That is the main thing. He goes on to suggest in this same essay, Luther, that there's a distinction between the first four commandments and the second six commandments in the book of Exodus. The first four stress our duty to God, the second six stress our duty to one another. And Luther says the works we are talking about now deal especially with the first three great commandments, which talk about pertaining to honouring God's name and God's word. And I think it is indeed healthy to be reminded that believing, confessing and teaching the truth is good works, give evidence. I believe, and I say this, I believe in our own church, we need more of you, more men and women to step up and start teaching God's word. Maybe that's a challenge for you as you... We come out of lockdown one, one glorious day. We need, we need men in the pulpit. Men, we need you to start making commitments to coming out and learning a little bit more and, and putting yourself in that place to teach and preach. We need, we need women to teach. We need men and people. We need people not just to, to lead groups and to facilitate this or facilitate that. We need people to teach God's word. We desperately need that. Good works are works of faith, but they're also works of love. Our good deeds must not only demonstrate our loyalty to God, they must also show our love and care for those around us. And maybe the primary meaning of good deeds is practical, not only spiritual. But we must shine our light through practical, visible, tangible works that themselves embody the good news of the love of God. I go so far as to actually say this without these practical, visible, good works, the gospel loses its credibility and God loses his honor. Maybe this is why James, the brother of our Lord, who writes one of the very earliest of the New Testament books, maybe just 15 years or so after the death of Christ, he writes, without faith, your, without works, your faith is dead. Faith without works, he says, is dead. He's not saying that you earn earn, uh, your salvation by works. But he is saying one of the ways you demonstrate that you do have salvation, you do have faith, is that you show by works. Let's close off by looking at what some of these works might look like. First of all, they are the works of faith, if you like. Honoring God above everyone and everything else. Refusing to set up idols in his place. I just want to stop here just a minute. You say, but I don't have any idols in my life. I don't have a golden calf sitting in my living room. I don't have anything like that. I was just listening to Tim Keller uh, just a few days ago, and he was quoting St. Augustine. St. Augustine says that sin is nothing more than disordered love. In other words, what you do is you take the things you love and you put them in the wrong order. So if you think of the things that you and I love and and commit to. One of course is our love and commitment to God. We have a love and commitment to our families. We have a love for and a commitment, say, to our career. But in which order should those things come? Because if they're in the wrong order, then we're guilty of idol, idol, uh, creating idols. None of us would disagree, and I speak especially to those of you who are of a working age. Most of you would agree. It's important to have your love for your family above your love for your career. You put your career above your family. You are not following the biblical injunction. But what about your love for God? Is it possible to put your love for your career even above your love for God? Probably not. I don't think many would do that. But here's one that is even more tricky. Is it possible to put your love for your family above your love for God? Is it possible that your family Your children become an idol. This is what disordered love is. You see, the problem with sin is not so much the bad things we do. It's the good things we put in the wrong place. Another work of faith is worshipping alone and together. We've had to do an awful lot of that strange worshipping, haven't we? And I look forward to the day when we can worship together in a different way. But that's one of the works of faith. We as Christians are meant to do that. And it's about evangelizing and speaking the truth of the gospel. If I can just stop just one more second here as well. I read a shocking, shocking statistic the other day from uh, um, an evangelical uh, publication, online publication. The, su- the suggestion is this that of every 10 young people who profess faith, Christian young people who attend church, When they go on to university or college, eight out of every 10 lose their faith. Maybe it's not losing their faith, but whatever their profession was, they simply ignore it. They let it go. Eight out of every 10. Now, I've been here at this church long enough to have seen that happening. Not necessarily eight out of 10, but we've seen young people who when they leave the the body of the church and they go out on their own, something happens we can't allow that to happen we must do everything we possibly can to stop that happening unfortunately the real onus doesn't lie with nick the pastor or any of us who teach in and through the church the real onus lies with the parents teaching evangelizing your own children now, it's a challenge to each one of you who have children who are young teenagers You've got another four or five years before they leave you. Teach them doctrine. Teach them the things of God. Don't just tell them the Bible stories. Teach them how to argue for the faith. Teach them as much as you can teach them. Put them on a three or four year course of biblical teaching and you will learn yourself through that. Those are the works of faith. But they're also the works of love. We're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And that involves a whole lot of things. Loving your neighbor begins with even knowing their name for a start. Looking for opportunities to be great neighbors. Christians should always be the very best of neighbors. And it's not just the folk who live next door. It's the people we socialize with. The people we work with. The people we study with. The people we play with. Make a list of their names. And next to each name, write down exactly the work of faith you're going to do for them in the coming weeks. Acts of charity and concern, acts of friendship, opening up your home to people because it's not your home. It's simply a place God has given you for a time to use in his service. Do things and not just talk about doing things. Be generous with what God has given us. And we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with very special Agape love, self sacrificing love. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up, so that with one mind, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 14, just going back a little bit, Paul says this If your brother, or sister, is distressed by what you eat. You are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating, or drinking, or whatever you do. Destroy someone for whom Christ has died. These gifts of love and works of love are also about praying for one another. Billy Graham once said this, the greatest, most common lie told by Christians is this. I will pray for you possibly the most common lie told by Christians. I hope that's not true of us. The final thing I'd like to talk about here is this. We need to be really aware of the actual needs of one another, despite our differences, and find ways of helping to meet those needs. I'd like to quote, finally, from Martin Lloyd-Jones one more time. He says, As I understand it, and it seems to me to be an inevitable piece of logic and interpretation, There is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I think what he means by this, in fact, I know what he means by this, is those who kind of go through the motions, they come to church, they do all these things, but they've never made a commitment to Christ. He says, by that I mean one who has the name, but not the quality or life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul describes this when he writes of certain people having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They appear to be Christians, but they are not. They want to appear as Christians, but they are not prepared to live as Christians. They are salt without savor. They are lamps without light. The formal Christian is the one who knows enough about Christianity to spoil the world for him or her, but not enough about it to, have any, to be of any positive value. I hope we have no formal, Christians in our church. I don't know that. I can't know that, but you would know that. Whether it's all show and no reality, please, please don't go on another day without fooling yourself. Come to Christ, come to know Jesus, because when you get to know him, light comes into your life that you never realized was even there. And you become light then to the world. A town built on a hill which cannot be hidden. Just a final little story, then I'm done. Interesting story from the very beginning of the last century, 1900, 1901. There was a man by the name of William Coleman. William Coleman was an inventor. And one of the things he invented was the Coleman lamp. Now, some of you may remember, even in the 50s and 60s, when you went camping before the advent of all of these battery-operated things, you used to have a kerosene lamp with a a wick, and you'd fill the bottom with paraffin, kerosene, and you'd take it on your camping trips. You might even have them in the home in case there was a power outage, these Coleman-type lamps. But Coleman had a real difficulty selling these lamps in the beginning. He'd put a few on on his cart, and he'd travel through the ups and down through all of the different states of America trying to sell these Coleman lamps. Nobody wanted to buy them. And he remembered once going into a a home where the poor child was trying to do a little bit of homework and all they had was candlelight. And the mother was trying to cook some food, but all she had was a bit of candlelight. It was pitch dark with just a few candles scattered around the house. And he demonstrated the lamp and they still didn't want to buy it, even though it wasn't all that expensive. And he couldn't understand it. And eventually he turned to them and said, please, please, please understand this. I'm not trying to sell you a lamp. I'm trying to sell you light. Brothers and sisters, we're not in the business of trying to sell lamps. We're not here to promote a church. We're not here to try to sell a set of doctrines. We're not even here to promote ourselves. We're here to talk about light. Jesus is the light. His truth is the light. And you and I, as we belong to him, are light set on a hill. We're light that lights up a room. Let us be that light in the days ahead. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we have this privilege of having you, the light of the world, in our lives. Father, help us to be light to others, we pray. Help us not to be shy or fearful of sharing this light with others because they are in the darkness we pray for those we know those who are close to us family friends who are in the darkness and we pray dear lord shine upon them through our light through our lives shine upon them we pray for jesus sake amen